0: Welcome to the Vandenak weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO of Vandenak weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession, business exit planning, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal.
2: And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to InteractiveLegal.com and click on Request and Demo.
0: Wealth Planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth. Giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402 779 8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services is offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor.
1: On today's episode, my guests are Martin Shankman and Jonathan Blotmacher. Neither one of these two really needs an introduction. But Marty, who is CPA, MBA, PFS, AP JD—that's a lot of initials. Marty is
3: an attorney. You know, my mom, you know, my mom said, "Mary, what's that? You couldn't have, you couldn't have just been a doctor?"
1: <laughs> just had the MD. So he's an attorney, and you were—I don't know if you're still in New Jersey. I think you're mostly in New York now, right? New but York. Yeah. Concentrates on estate and closely held business planning, tax planning, and estate administration. He is an author of at least 42 books and more than 1,200 articles. I'm sure it's quite a bit more than that. He's a member of the NAEPC Board of Directors Emeritus on the Board of American Brain Foundation, the American Cancer Society's National Professional Advisor Network, and Will Cornell Medicine Professional Advisory Council. Jonathan is well known for being one of the most creative trust and estate lawyers in the country, He's also well-respected for the use of technology and an advocate for the same. He's a principal at Pioneer Wealth Partners, editor-in-chief at Interactive Legal, and director of estate planning at Peak Trust Company. Thanks to both of you for being here today. It's always fun.
3: There's nothing else we'd rather be doing, Mary. And I speak for Jonathan on that one point.
2: As he always does, even without asking. (laughs) So when we were originally
1: planning this, we were going to do this before the election. And we said, well, let's do this after the elections because we'll know more then. Do you think we actually know more now about what's going to happen next year?
2: Well, we now I mean, you still have a lame duck session and Biden has said that he wants to try to get some things done. But I don't think there's really anything on the tax front or federal legislative front that would have a big impact, except we are going to discuss the Corporate Transparency Act. And that is really now in the control of the, uh, basically the federal government through regulation because the legislation has been passed. The chances of any significant legislation relating to our field uh, before the Congress, the new Congress comes in, I think on January 3rd, I think is really remote. And most people feel that there's very little chance of major legislation over the next couple of years. It will all depend upon who's elected president in 2024. So I think we can plan on some significant activity from the Treasury and maybe some other areas of the federal government. But it's probably not going to be by legislation. But then again, you never know.
3: I I think it's important to emphasize the last comment Jonathan said, you never know. I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to see anything passed. I know Biden has his green book and, you know, it was certainly uh, strategically planned to try to get it through, but it seems pretty unlikely that's going to happen. Um, You know, it's possible that through some of the uh, uh, negotiations to get unrelated legislation through that somehow they cut a deal to tax the wealthy. (laughs) But I don't, I think the general consensus is we're not going to see any major legislative change, which is a dramatic uh, difference from what we had in 2020 and 2021, where every other week there was like a new piece of legislation being proposed. And we were all running as were our clients to try to get planning done before some change. And, And that actually creates an interesting planning environment because it may be, that we have a couple of years before the 2024 election to actually plan without the time pressure that we had in the past few years. So clients can take their time and, and more carefully implement planning. You know, if we're going to talk about slats, you know, in 2020 and 2021, I think everybody was doing a slats for spouses at the same time, because there was no, you couldn't, the clients didn't want to risk. And we, it made sense not to risk waiting to try to further differentiate the slats because we didn't know when legislation could become effective right now, given what Jonathan said, which I think most professionals agree with, it's unlikely to see any legislative change. If clients are planning to do planning on doing planning, that sounds silly, but if they're contemplating planning before 2026, when the exemptions cut in half and many clients should, they could start transfers this year in 2023, One spouse could set up a slat this year or next year. They have to divide assets. They could do it this year and then uh, have a gift next year. And the other spouse could make a gift in 2024 or even 2025. We have lots of time uh, to really stretch out the planning and reduce the risk of not only a challenge under the reciprocal trust doctrine, but under the step transaction doctrine. And that's new and different than what we've been facing for the last few years.
1: Well, there's been a lot of articles out there saying slats just don't work. What are your thoughts on that perspective? Is there a
2: difference? Well, it, it depends on what you mean slats don't work. Certainly, someone can, can create a trust for his or her spouse. It'll be a valid trust. And if you don't have it qualify for the marital reduction, it will use your exemption or cause you to pay gift tax. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Now, there can be collateral factors like, well, there was an understanding between the spouses that the trust really was for the grantor spouse. And, you know, the the spouse who's named as the beneficiary wouldn't receive anything. And that spouse would have a power of appointment and would continue the trust for the grantor spouse. And, And you could possibly come up with a scenario where the IRS might take the position that it really was a sham. But if you do a trust for your spouse, there's no reason why that wouldn't work. I've done several trusts for my spouse and I've helped clients create trusts for their spouse. No reason why it can't be done. It gets a little bit more complicated when the beneficiary spouse creates one for the grantor spouse. And then you get into questions, like Marty said, are they reciprocal trusts, which basically will cause the grantor of the trust to be treated as the beneficiary in each trust in some cases but as marty indicated the best remedy for that is time if you want to do the non-reciprocal slats for each other create one now wait a fat year maybe a year and a half fund it with different assets, have different trustees created under the laws of different states. Although one of the things you're going to want to do is that you're going to want to create these trusts in states that have asset protection trust legislation, so-called domestic asset protection trust legislation. That way, if the trust that I create for my wife is treated as though it's created for me, as long as I don't have a power of appointment, And as long as I'm not entitled to the income, it should not be includable in my estate, even if they switch the trust so I'm treated as though I created the one that my wife created for me. So that's something that could be done. But to say that slats don't work is preposterous. It's just if you do anything in an abusive fashion, you stand a chance of not getting what you wanted. But now, as Marty points out, we probably have quite a bit of time. Now, it's possible that the IRS would go ahead and say, well, these, quote, clawback provisions, where basically we say, well, even though you used your exemption or something, we're not going to treat it as having been done, that they might have that apply in the context of slats, where each spouse does a slat for the other. But you can make these slats very, very different. You could create them with different assets, with different trustees. Each spouse would have different interests in the trust. And I think that it would be virtually impossible for the IRS to say that those are, in fact, not going to be respected. Marty, what do
3: you think? Well, let me first give a reaction that that won't help technically. But forgive me, everyone. I just I got to say it. I'm old, I'm cranky, and I want to just speak my mind. I'd like to quote a very well-known, well-respected, famous American philosopher, my mom. My mom always said to me, if you can't say something nice, don't say it. Practitioners know that thousands, if not everybody out there, has been doing non-reciprocal slats. We've all been doing them. We could say the same comments and phrase the same intelligent articles and webinars by saying there may be ways to do them better rather than saying something that you know almost all your colleagues are doing may not work we could say things in a more positive light I think it would be helpful for everybody there's no reason to make potentially problems for colleagues that are just trying to do the best they can second in 2020 and 2021 I think almost every practitioner out there did slats where they were signed on the same day because we had no choice. If we thought that the Von Holland or Sanders tax bill could be effective tomorrow, if we could finish slats today, yes, there was a risk. And it wasn't only a reciprocal trust doctrine risk, but it was a step transaction risk in many cases with how they were funded. What choice did we have? So my belief is that we had to react as practitioners to the environment we were in and that's why we started this discussion by saying it's very different now now we have for the first time in several years the luxury of time before we have to get these things done and we can do a better job of differentiating them which i don't think we had the ability to do so that those are two general comments let me uh tackle this subject and i think it's very important you brought this up mary because I've seen some of these articles and materials and they concern me, too. And I agree with Jonathan. It's wrong to say that slats or any technique doesn't work. Techniques can be done poorly. They can be done better. Sometimes the less than optimal uh, approach is because of the environment. Like, oh, my gosh, Sanders tax bill could be enacted tomorrow. We better get this done. Sometimes it's because planning isn't done as best as it can be. And we can all help each other improve. Let me ask you guys a question. I know you're the moderator, but I'm asking the next question. Mary, you're bright as can be. Jonathan, you're not only bright, but I'm not going to comment on how good looking you are. (laughs) How many how many reciprocal trust doctrine challenges have you seen or heard of in the past five years? I'm going to start the answer by saying I can't I'm not not angled right zero. I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm not saying we shouldn't address it. We absolutely should. But I haven't seen it brought up on audit. I don't think ever. Have you guys seen it?
1: I haven't either. You're right. It's zero in the last five years.
2: Right, Marty. I think the one thing is, is that
3: you could never give me a quick answer. <laughs> no,
2: I, I'm going to give you I'm going but I'm going to give you a correct answer, Marty. The, the concept of reciprocal slats really came up maybe three years ago as people began to prepare for what they anticipated were going to be big changes in Congress and you better act quickly now. So people began talking about it. Remember, it doesn't really become a live issue until one of the spouses dies. So if Mary creates a, a slat for her husband and her husband creates one for her, nothing matters. I mean, they're going to be grantor trusts. And as long as they're married, it's going to be taxed to them as a couple as a practical matter. So the fact that the service has not really gone after it in a big way doesn't mean it won't in the future because it's only in the future when one of the spouses dies and a return is filed and there's an audit. And the IRS perhaps is bright enough to say, by the way, now that Mr. Jones has died and there's a trust that Mrs. Jones created for him, which you claim is not in his estate because it didn't qualify for the deduction, by any chance did he create one for her? And if the answer is yes, he created one for her, well, maybe they'll roll out the doctrine because the powers that he likely will have in the trust that she created for him could be includable in his estate. That's for example, where he's entitled to the income, or it's you know, going to be subject to a you know power of appointment by him. Best thing to do is don't put the power of appointment in the trust. Have it added at a later time if you need it, perhaps through the exercise of a decanning power. Uh, that's the best thing to do. But also, and I want to emphasize this, if you're going to do slats and there's any way in which they can come back and say the grantor was actually the beneficiary of the trust, make sure you do it in a domestic asset pr- d- uh, trust uh, uh, jurisdiction, whether it's Alaska, Nevada, South Dakota, Delaware, New Hampshire, wherever you want, there are at least 18 of them now. That way, even if the IRS rolls out the reciprocal trust doctrine, so they said, well, we're going to take the position that the trust that Mr. Jones created for Mrs. Jones and the one that she created for him, he was really the grantor of the trust she created for him, so we're going to roll out the re- you know some sort of asset protection Failure And therefore, it's going to be includable in the estate because throughout the United States, except for these 18 jurisdictions, if you create a trust for your own benefit, even if you are not a title to any, any, anything, it's includable in your estate as a self-settled trust. So that's a better thing to do. But Marty, I, I, I haven't heard anything about it either, except me, everybody's talked about it. I, obviously, the IRS has seen, seen it, but I don't think it's going to come out until the first
3: spouse dies. Uh, let, me, let me just make a couple of comments and then we give some practical advice, too. First, in 2012, we had a similar situation to 2026. We all thought the exemption was going to go to five, from $5 million down to $1 million. So there was a frantic rush in 2012 before the end of the year to get planning done. And there were plenty of, uh, spousal lifetime access trust plans done at that point. In fact, I recall, being concerned about doing plans for clients that were just setting up trust for kids and grandkids and not leaving themselves a, a, a mechanism to access assets, because I was worried about their financial future, whether they would be able to survive without access, given their age and the amount of wealth they were transferring relative to their overall net worth. But we had a lot of slides done in 2012. It's now 2022. It's a decade later. I'm not hearing of any audits that have occurred where this issue has been brought up. Now, that being said, I'm not saying we shouldn't give respect to it. I agree with Jonathan The 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 default SLAT plan I use, and I'll use myself as an example. My wife's SLAT that she created for me was created in in, uh, Nevada with Premier Trust as a trustee. The SLAT that I created for her was created in Alaska with Peak Trust. Different institutional trustees, different jurisdictions with fairly significant differences in state law. And that was just the start. So I agree with Jonathan 100%. If you're giving away millions of dollars, people should afford to be able to put them in DAP jurisdictions. It's safer. Better asset protection, which is a non-tax motive for doing this, that's relevant for lots of clients. I like having as a default an institutional trustee. And I'm not going to even ask you, Mary and Jonathan, if your experience is any different than mine. But the vast majority of individual family non-professional trustees just bluntly do an awful job. They don't do anything adhering to the formalities of a trust for them, generally. So to me, if you can name an institutional trustee, there's a much greater likelihood the trust will be administered properly. I've seen people that have named family trustees that literally the month or two after setting up a trust, they're pulling out all the income. I mean, they're almost demonstrating that they have control. And they're pulling it out from both trusts. I think they may have destroyed the plan, but they certainly have... have raised questions about it. So a default of using independent institutions in different jurisdictions and DAP jurisdictions, I think it's a great way to do it when you go forward. Will it help switching a trust now from Uncle Joe and Aunt Jane to professional institutional trustees and in DAP jurisdictions? Uh, most of these trusts probably have changes, CITES clauses. Many of them have trust protectors. You can do that. You can d- decant them if you don't feel the differences are substantial enough and, and add differences. I think it's critical that they'd be administered properly. If you're taking out money in equal amounts from both trusts to each spouse, it's a problem. One of the things that worried me, which is why I started years ago putting these in DAP jurisdictions, Mary, lots of couples, when they set up these types of trusts, if wife, for example, and I'm gonna just say wife and husband, it says spouse one, spouse two, it's easier to follow. If wife got a distribution from the slat husband set up, where does she put it? Joint checking account. And then the next weekend, Saturday afternoon, husband writes out a check to the electric company. Isn't he using the very money that was in a trust he's not a beneficiary of to pay for his living expenses? I think it's a potential problem. That's why I like exactly what Jonathan said, adapt jurisdiction to give you a fallback argument. But I think people can far more intelligently administer these things. My wife and I don't have a joint checking account, so we can never do that mistake. But that's kind of the administration that too many clients don't let us do. So I think that's significant. Let me flip the conversation a different way, if I may. And I don't know if I'm supposed to keep talking, but you're smiling, so I'm gonna keep going. Um, I never get a
1: word you know, in edgewise when I'm chatting with you guys. Well, you
3: put Jonathan in me here. I mean, well, you, you did it and you didn't muzzle me. I'm, I'm okay well, with it. My wife usually has the remote control and keeps me on mute. The, the, the issue, I think, could be the opposite for many clients. We're all talking about, oh, my, are they differentiated enough? I'm concerned, especially in a blended family context, second, third, fourth marriage, you know, maybe even a fifth marriage, whatever. You know, one spouse has a five and five power. They're pulling out five percent of the principal year after year after year. And the end game was, let's say everything's divided between the kids from both marriages when both spouses die. But meanwhile, I'm pulling out five percent a year. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bequeath in my will all that money to my kids. Have I not just disrupted the plan? Or maybe to differentiate it, because Jonathan mentioned you know different powers of appointment. I give my wife Patty a broad limited lifetime power of appointment over the slat I created, but she didn't give me one. She may have gone out and hired another lawyer and exercised that power, leaving all the money to her, I shouldn't say this too loud, to her kids, and nothing to my kids. Destroying the whole kind of thought that we what we might have thought. I'm worried that because a lot of the powers that are built in to differentiate slacks are really so real, the clients may not remember all that we told them how we have to differentiate them. These differences have real substantive economic benefit. I could see people coming back in the future. Forget the IRS screaming at the attorney, oh, my, look what my spouse did, and it unravels what we thought we were doing. Well, you know, these things can be real and have real economic substance. But I think that's also why some of the the worries about reciprocal trust doctrine may not be as great as some people are saying, because we're going to see people fighting and complaining that the differences are being used and are real.
2: Well, let me add one other thing. You make a good point, Morty. About the fact that if you're in a blended family, you know, let's say you die first and your wife now has this power of appointment and you didn't exercise your power. So it's going to go evenly to her descendants and to your descendants. But remember, if she remarries and she can exercise this power in favor of her her next husband, keep in mind, Mary, and this is a truism and you can quote me. You are most influenced by the person with whom you sleep so even though marty is no doubt one of the world's greatest lovers he's given his wife tremendous pleasure during their entire marriage he dies she marries a schlump like me but i'm going to tell her every night in bed at breakfast at lunch at dinner you've got to exercise that power in my favor One of the things that I began doing is to provide when someone is given a power of appointment that they can only exercise it with the consent of what I'll call an adult. Maybe it's your own attorney or your own brother. So if Marty's wife wants to come in and exercise it, maybe in favor of her kids, maybe in favor of her new husband, she has to go to my brother or my cousin or someone that's probably going to say, patty you know we love you madly but we just don't think that that's the right thing to do and in fact mary let me point out that we could have done this entire hour on slats and maybe sometimes we should do some because all of these subtle little differences really count as marty points out in the real world
1: so yeah and i am gonna move us on to some of the proposed regs but that's a good point And I recently gave a couple presentations on ethical issues related to estate planning. So when you start talking about the different issues that you're mentioning with SLATs, I think it's really important as a planning point to really lay out clearly what the ramifications are and the things like whether or not you should and why you should consider a professional trustee and how these things work. Because that's what you see coming back later down the pikes, and then we create Potter for litigators by not carefully planning them out. I do like the thought that we have some time. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors
0: at Foster Group. We know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com.
1: Okay, let's continue our episode. One of you had mentioned that it's been somewhat active in terms of proposed regs. And I think, Jonathan, you had wanted to talk a little bit about the grantor trust proposed regulations.
2: Well, it's not actually a proposal yet, but but here is what happened. Uh, Some nefarious lawyers figured out that grantor trusts were the best thing since night baseball for estate planning. Because by having your trust be a grantor trust, you've got three important opportunities. Number one, the grantor gets to pay the income tax, which allows the assets in that trust to grow entirely free of income tax. So you get the magic of tax-free compounding, the most powerful force in all of financial planning. Second, it allows you to engage in certain transactions without gain. For example, your client creates a grantor retained annuity trust. If the trustee wants to distribute an appreciated asset to the grantor, that would trigger gain, as it always does when you use an appreciated asset to pay for something. But because the grantor trust is ignored, and the service's official position is reflected in Revenue Ruling 85-13 and in regulations, which do have the force of law, and that would be much more difficult for the service to change in my judgment in any event, it means that you've now got a situation where there is no gain recognition because the grantor is treated as though she owns those assets. Third, again, some nefarious lawyer came up with the concept of doing an installment sale to a grantor trust, and because the grantor would be treated as though she sold the assets to herself, there is no gain recognition, and that can be done again with a note, and the note would only have to bear the appropriate applicable federal rate of interest, which is going to be, we think, much lower than the return which the trust would experience. You can imagine if you have an 8% bond and you sell those bonds to a trust, you're not taking any discounts, no magic. But now the trust is only going to be obligated to pay back at the, say, the applicable federal rate, which at the time might've only been 3%. So you have a 5% incentive to do this transaction. And over time that 5% differential can really make a huge difference. People in Washington became concerned about that, and there were a number of proposals, including by Bernie Sanders in his Bill 309, and also by others, but nothing, of course, happened with respect to those. However, Representative Pasquiel, who's on the House Ways and Means Committee, is a congressperson from New Jersey, wrote a letter to Janet Yellen, the head of the Treasury, and she in turn is the head of not just the Treasury, but basically the head of the IRS to boot. He wrote her a letter and said, look, you've got to stop all this stuff that they're doing with grantor trusts, particularly what some crazy lawyers came up with which is that if you have assets in a grantor trust and the grantor dies, even if those assets are not includable in the grantor's gross estate, you nonetheless get an income tax-free step-up in basis. Well, Mary, I can tell you when Mitch Gans and Hugh Jacobson and I turned that article in, which appeared in the September 2002 issue of the Journal of Taxation, it is an exciting read, the editor called us and said, Jonathan, we published your first book. Jonathan, we published 50 articles by, by you, but now you've gone too far. To say that there's a tax-free step-up in basis without the assets being includable in the grand choice estate, you've gone too far. This is worse than you know what people did during World War II with a bridge too far when Montgomery tried to uh, to do it. So Jonathan, we're not gonna publish this. 30 minutes later, he said, This will be the most exciting article we've published in 10 years. So the IRS came out with something in 2009, said it didn't work. But then in 2012, they said it did work. Then they said, we're not going to rule anymore. We're going to study the matter. Well, how long has it been, Mary, from 2012 to now, 2022? Let me get my calculator. Ten years, I did. did Ten years, ten years. They've been studying it. But they didn't do anything. But finally, Representative Pasquale wrote to Janet Yellen and said, you've got to stop this madness. You've got to do something. Well, months and months went on. But finally, in the IRS business plan for 2021, they said, we are going to do something about Grantor trust. I think the most that they will do is just say, there's no step-up in basis. But keep in mind, it is the service's official position. And it's not just revenue ruling 85-13, which yes, they could theoretically change. It's in the regulations. And regulations have the force of law. And you better be damn sure when you change a regulation, which was sitting outstanding for over 30 years, you better have a good way to do it. But they can't get it through the Congress, so I don't know what they're gonna do to say, we're not gonna give you that tax-free step-up in basis. Maybe it'll just be, it's our official position, and we're gonna take the position you don't get it. But what is the reasoning? Because Mary, as you know, the IRS's position is, I own these assets that are in the grantor trust. Section 1014 says, if you own an asset at the time of your death, and it's transferred to another person, at your death, you get the tax-free step-up in basis. Well, the IRS official position is I own these assets. When I die and grant or trust status necessarily turns off, that's the first time for income tax purposes that the assets have been transferred to another. QED, you get a step-up in basis. Now, let's see what happens. I'm very, very interested in seeing it, but I don't think you should hesitate to at least do standard transactions like a grant and making distributions with appreciated assets or going ahead and even doing an installment sale to a Grand Tour Trust. I doubt if they're gonna chop off more than this little tiny thing to try to deny you the tax free step up in basis for the assets in the grantor Tour Trust when the Grand Tour dies.
1: Any different or additional thoughts, Marty?
3: Are you kidding me? To follow
2: that? <laughs> well, then, not that I, not that I have <laughs> strong,
3: strong views about this stuff. You I, mean. I think, Mary, we should try to find a topic that will get Jonathan excited for the remaining time we have.
1: <laughs> well, I think the next one is actually one that he likes, too, which is the clawback.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the IRS feels that people were trying to use their exemptions, but not really give the assets away. And so they one was uh, something that was promoted by uh, Austin Bramwell, one of my colleagues at Millbank, about making a gift by a promise. A promise is not made a gift. So if I promise to give Mary a million dollars, which I do right now, well, guess what? That's not a gift because it's not enforceable because Mary didn't provide any consideration. However, in Pennsylvania, you can make a promise, and if it's in writing in accordance with its statute, that promise is enforceable, and you will be deemed to have made it a gift as of that time. Other ways to do it is, Mary says, Jonathan, uh, I am going to give you this uh, this pie I've made, and I say, okay, Mary, if you promise to give me that pie, I'm going to promise to give you. Whatever my exemption amount is. And theoretically, that's enforceable now under local law. And the difference between the value of the pie, let's say that's worth 20 bucks and the amount of my exemption, which might be about 12 million dollars, that is a gift. The IRS has now come out and tried to come in with some proposed regulations. They're not final yet to say, if you do something like that, where you're basically going to keep it for the rest of your life, then we're not going to treat it as though you've actually made a transfer. There is an 18-month exception. So if you, for example, make a gift by promise and you actually pay it off, Uh, More than 18 months prior to your death, you can go ahead and have your cake and eat it, too. You'll be able to keep that asset until 18 months prior to your death or 19 or 20 months, whatever you could do, uh, and yet be deemed to have made a gift. Um, This, I think, will inhibit some people from doing it. There are ways around this. Uh, The other one that is a constant one that people talk about is the preferred stock freeze. And this is where I form an entity, let's say a corporation, and I keep the preferred stock. I'm sorry, I keep the preferred stock and I give away the common. The value of the common will include the value of the retained preferred. And that allows you to use your exemption to the extent of the real value of the preferred. And so that was another thing that people have done in the service, and its proposed regulations said no. Now, these proposed regulations are supposed to be effective on the date that they appear in the Federal Register and are adopted as final regs. But you have time now to do it, and these retroactive rules won't apply, um, and so you have time to do this now if you want to. Jonathan, you may want to clarify, time to do what now if you want to? If you want to, for example, uh, do a gift by promise. If you want to do a preferred partnership, or again, you retain the preferred, you give away
3: the common, and you deem to make a gift of the preferred. But if it's not going to work under the proposed regs, I'm not following why you would do it now.
2: Because you will have done it, but because you will have 18 months. Now, this, again, is that you did your deal now, they adopt the regulations in a month, and you're going to be caught by this unless you give away the amount within
3: a, a more than 18 months prior to your death. Let, let me let me add a, a, another thought on um, those techniques. The way I understand it, and Jonathan or Mary, if you disagree, let me know if you used one of the techniques that they deemed uh, um sort of a a riskless gift a have your cake and eat it to gift where you've kind of retained the economic interest and therefore uh, it's going to be pulled back. You won't have preserved the exemption. It seems that you've now in effect wasted, unless you can circumvent like the 18 month rule, you've wasted the exemption. You don't have that extra exemption saved as you thought. So now you're going to face a larger estate tax. So it may be that people that engaged in these transactions, if there's not a way to salvage it, which I think in a lot of cases there won't be, they may want to actually look at other types of planning because they have less exemption and are going to face more estate tax after 2025. Perhaps, for example, a simple plan like buying life insurance, because now they're facing a different situation, may be necessary to sort of fill the gap left by a plan that may now not work. All right. Let, let me mention that
2: what Marty and I have been talking about is that people were trying to use their exemptions now in anticipation that it would be cut back by legislation or, or by the existing legislation beginning in 2026. So I've got a $12 million exemption now why don't i just give and i they think it's going to be 6 million beginning in 2026 because the legislation there says it's going to be cut in half so why don't i give away 6 now And that way I'll have another six whether I die before 2026 or after 2026 when the exemption goes down to six million. The problem is, is that the IRS has come out with regulations, and I think they're probably valid, that when you die, you're deemed to use whatever exemption you have that you've already used. So if I use six million now and I die when the exemption is six million, well, I got a six million dollar exemption. I'm going to apply the $6 million I've already used against that, so my effective exemption is is zero when I die. That is what people are basically trying to avoid. Of course, there's the benefit of making a gift early and getting the growth and the income out of your estate, but that's not what they're looking at. They're looking at trying to use the exemption now when it's so much larger. But uh, again, it appears under these proposed regulations, you're not going to be able to do that unless... You go ahead and you basically do your business within. get rid of what you retained more than 18 months prior to your death.
1: So the proposed regs are really trying to. So the call I got a lot uh, with the higher exemption was, can I just have a promissory note to a trust without really giving anything to it? And that's really what they're kind of going after, right? So it's like, I'm going to use my exemption with a promissory note. And um, maybe I'll just never actually pay that if the, unless I have to. If it looks like the exemption is going to drop, then maybe I'll fund that or pay it off. And so we're saying that if I do that with an unsecured note, there's no enforceability. That's
2: the problem. Well, that, that's right, Mary. And that takes us back to a, a, a slat for your spouse. Certainly, I can create a trust from my wife with my $12 million exemption and it's not going to qualify for the marital deduction, so it will use exemption, so I've now used it. And maybe through my spouse's generosity, I can continue to benefit from the property in the trust. But of course, if she dies before me, I'm going to lose it unless she is given a power of appointment and she continues the trust for me. And that gets into the substance of a form. And if She does one for the husband, and the husband does one for the wife, um, then you're going to go ahead and have this situation, or are you going to have the problems that we talked about with respect to slats. But right now, if you say, I really can't afford to give the $12 million to my spouse or anybody right now, uh, so I want to do something a little tricky. I would suggest you not try, in light of these proposed regulations, to think that you're going to be able to basically meet the criteria of doing it more than 18 months prior to your death. You're better off, if you're married, considering you know non-reciprocal slats. And as Marty points out, you've got lots of time now to do it, to differentiate them, go to different states, different trustees. Um, but 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 again, super rich people like Mary don't have to worry about it because she can just afford to give away 12 million. But the rest of us, you know, 12 million is an awful lot. A couple, it's 24 million. Who can afford it other than Marty to some degree? But Mary definitely can afford to give
3: up 24 million dollars right now. But by the way, joking aside, that's a real issue I see with a lot of this planning when we are doing this kind of planning it's very important that clients understand what economic impact the planning is going to have on them i've had people come to me who i've refused to do the work for where they feel that you know they got a 20 million dollar net worth and they're going to give away 12 million dollars and they're 50 years old there's no way that they have the wherewithal to support their lifestyle expenses for the rest of their lives practitioners need to make sure that you provide enough access that if possible you get them to go to a wealth advisor and get forecast done unless you have the wherewithal to do the forecasts um, and a lot of the forecasts i've seen lawyers prepare because most lawyers i don't prepare them i don't think most lawyers do some of the ones i've seen have been very simplistic you really want a full monte carlo simulation based on a real budget, maybe different budget variants to show that the clients have the wherewithal if they're really letting go of the money. I've still to this day seen stuff like I have in 2012 where people were rushing to get planning done to safe an exemption and set up trust for kids or grandkids, didn't have any access to it. There's no reason to do that. Just do your slats more carefully. Have loan provisions, consider hybrid DAPS, dApps, spats. There's lots of options out there Lots of variations within the trust documents. I think that some of the clients doing this, because especially as we get closer to 2026 um, or if the Democrats win in 2024 and they think that the Sanders and Pasquale and, and so on, and Van Holland tax bills are going to come back, are going to be jumping at this. We need to make sure that financially it works.
1: Which is the nice thing that both of you said, we do have some time at least, it looks like right now, unless something dramatic happens. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, we had this CCA 2021-52018 pop out at us at the very end of the year last year, when a lot of us were busy doing all kinds of gifts. So does one of you want to speak to how that affects us for planning, and there's a case called the Batty case that's out there that's kind of being looked at as, well, the IRS is really looking at this area. What are your thoughts on those issues?
2: Well, the the CCA dealt with what appeared to be on its face a perfectly qualified grant or retained annuity trust. However, the grantor reported it as a very, very tiny gift. Now, remember, when you, make a, a, when you do a grant, you only make a gift to the actuarial value of the remainder, which you can make, we believe, relatively small. Some people believe it can be zero. I have some question about that, but certainly most of us believe it can be very small. Or you can use a word's formula to allow it to be as small as the law allows. But what they did in that case, because remember, the grantor has to get back in annuity payments, basically the value of what she put in. So if she's deemed to put in five million dollars, she's got to get back five million plus interest. But if it's valued at ten, then she's got to get back ten million plus interest. Now, as a consequence, people want to value those interests low because it means that they're going to get back less. Well, the National Office of the Internal Revenue Service was so incensed on the value that the grants were put on the assets in the grant that they basically said that it wouldn't respect it, and in fact they. They said it was not a good grad. It was not a qualified grant or retained annuity trust described in regulation. Mary, that's regulation 25.2702-3. That's the regulation which defines a grad, and they said it didn't qualify but it appears to have qualified. It's just that the IRS was very, very angry about trying to hoodwink the service, because again, they make the gifts so small as a percentage of what goes in, that there's very little incentive for the IRS to go ahead and try to challenge the value. So what they did is they said, we're not gonna respect the grant at all. And if you don't respect the grant, then the entire value of what goes into the trust is immediately subject to gift tax. Again, I don't see anything which would suggest that the service has the power to do that. And that, in turn, Mary relates to that baddie case. The baddie case is one where someone made a gift. And on the date of the gift, it was with publicly traded stock. He used the average of the high and low for the valuation, which is what the regulations for gift tax purposes under, you know, a, a, a 2511. Uh, dash three or or, uh, provide, I'm sorry, dash uh, 12 provide, you have no exception. It's the average of the high and the low for the date of the trading. But the service said, no, 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 this gift was made by the person who controlled this publicly controlled, uh, publicly uh, held uh, company. And as a consequence, he knew because he was in negotiations to have the company merge with another that the value that was reflected in the stock market on the date of the gift wasn't the real value. And this actually was docketed in the tax court. But Mary, you've advised us, and Marty and I were unaware of this, that the service apparently has now dropped the case and so apparently the guy who made the gift and used the average of the high and the low the date of the transfer has gotten what he wanted even though it appears that if you looked after the fact of what happened it could be worth much much more money
3: i i think this is an issue that arises with lots of clients and lots of situations And whatever the result of the cca even if it's overturned and the grat uh is sort of respected uh and regardless of the batty case it's it's a a a a shout out if you will to all of us to be careful when clients are playing games with valuations lots of clients do it we had a case just recently we were working on client gave us an appraisal full-blown appraisal it was six months old on a on a net leased warehouse what changed in six months? Is six months too long? Is six months enough? What I found out is the warehouse was actually demolished, a new warehouse under construction, and a lease negotiated with a major national player for the new, much expanded warehouse. They, they, weren't, they weren't being forthright at all. Now, I didn't do the appraisal, but if I'm pulled into that planning, doesn't it become an issue for me? So I think practitioners generally have to take the batty case and the CCA and just be very mindful that clients. I know this may be uh, I I don't want to use harsh language, but clients may play games on value. They're looking to get the maximum tax benefit out of it. And with as long as they do it within reason, that's fine. If they do it within the bounds of the law, that's fine. But they shouldn't be doing it at our expense if we're pulled in. So practitioners need to be careful. And if you look at an appraisal, you need to make sure that the appraiser has been provided all the relevant information. All of us and every every practitioner has clients at different points in time that come to them that they're they're going to sell a company and they want to, you know, do a transaction before then. But so many clients like to wait till they kind of think that the deal is going to kind of go through. But where are they on that continuum? You know, is there really no deal so they can go out and get an appraisal or is there a mo you know letter of agreement already signed is there a contract already signed how far down the continuum have they moved to where they have to use the deal value those are questions of fact but i think that the lesson of all these cases is disclose those to the appraiser in the CCA had they given all the the uh, whether they're written or verbal agreements to the appraiser the appraiser may have evaluated them and determined that none of them were yet binding and discounted them I think they'd been in a much better position but practitioners need to be careful because you could get pulled into it
1: and i think that disclosing everything to the appraiser is really important since we've had that cca come out this you know we did a lot of transactions last year and your ability to do them on the date you have an appraisal just doesn't happen so there's an appraisal as of a certain date and then there's the date you make the gift and so there's sometimes going to be differences. And I think that if you actually disclose the information, let the appraiser ask those questions, you're exactly right. You are in a different position. Now, I did have some appraisers after that CCA for this past year ask, well, we want their projections for income over the next five years. And I will say that on in those cases, I said, well, OK, I can get those, but I'm really going to question you what value those have because, of course, they're trying to show great projections. So it's a little bit of both. You don't want clients playing games. And then you want to make sure that the appraisers are asking for questions, asking questions that are really relevant to the valuation as opposed as opposed to being just reactive to the CCA. But that does bring us to kind of talking about the Dino case, which we had this year, and maybe the use of formula clauses as opposed to this case, failing to use that, is something that's helpful, but does one of you want to speak to the Smaldino case and what that means for practitioners right now?
3: I think the Smaldino case was the end of 2020, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, but what the Smaldino case held was that you have to respect the formalities of a transaction if you want the IRS to respect it. Something we've all talked about, we all know about, but just too often, you know, clients just tend not to always follow the right formalities. Husband made a gift to wife of interest in a real estate LLC that wife then gave to a trust, but she only held it theoretically for one day. Is one day long enough? I mean, under the Holman case, stock was put into a partnership, Dell stock, and after six days, the discount was somehow respected. I don't think any of us want to count on a six day holding period being sufficient, but certainly one day's not and certainly longer is better, but there should be economic substance to avoid a step transaction to each step of the transaction. Worse in small Dino, if the wife had held this interest for one day, she should have signed an operating agreement showing that she was a member for a day. She should have gotten a K-1 from the, the, the LLC that was taxed as a partnership for one day's worth of income, Right. It would have been ideal had not only she held it much longer, 30 days, 60 days longer, the better. But also there been some economic consequence while she held it, perhaps a distribution, perhaps negotiation of a new lease with an underlying tenant. The formalities need to be adhered to the tax return. Didn't report her one day of ownership. I don't even believe that it was reported on a gift tax return. Something else that practitioners may want to consider is you don't have to report a gift from one spouse to the other spouse on a gift tax return unless you're electing Q-tip treatment. But maybe you want to report it. Maybe you want to show the IRS that there was a gift. Maybe that's a way to make sure somebody somewhere is following up to make sure all the documentation, like what I just talked about, was actually done. And if not, get it done. Another thing in Smaldino, which is a critical lesson, and again, these are just not one-off cases. We had the same issue with the client in the last month. Clients signed documents that they created without telling us that had an effective date, no date of signature. I said, folks, that was backdated. You can't do that. You want to sign something today and make it effective a certain date to fill in the gap? You do it, but you got to be honest. The court kind of figured out that they, they had Probably backdated the documents in Smaldino <laughs> <laughs> because there was no signature date, just an effective date, and the appraisal was received after the date of the gift. You don't want to play games, you want to observe formalities.
2: Right. One other thing about the Smaldino case is that Mrs. Smaldino gave this interest she got from her husband to his kids. Now, you might think, you know, this, they also did an installment sale. I mean, it looked absolutely fantastic. And at the end of the day, there was a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was because it was given to a grantor trust. And as we were talking about before, the grantor has to pay the income tax on the gains experienced by that trust. And sure enough, there was a huge gain and Mr. Smaldino was stuck with having to pay the tax. Now, we don't know this, but it may be that his wife was unhappy that he lost so much money, not just what he gave to his kids and not what she also gave to his kids, but they had to pay the income tax on the gain so the kids could get it all tax free. Uh, He claimed that he was never really told about the consequence that he would have to pay the tax. That may or may not be true. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is, and I spoke to the lawyer who was involved, Mr. Smaldino never paid the tax. So it turned out no one paid the tax. And in fact, the case is reported is a malpractice case against the law firm that was involved and yet no one paid the tax. Now you couldn't have a greater home run than that. You get all these assets out of your estate. No one winds up paying the capital gains tax. What is there to complain? Well, what you're there to complain is that someone didn't get what she thought she was gonna get or what he thought she was gonna get. So in a blended situation like happened in Small Dino, when you wanna have the other spouse participate, you better think through all the ramifications, including who's gonna be stuck with the tax bill. Otherwise you may wind up being at the other end of a malpractice case.
1: So I use I this case with associates to sort of represent the concept Optics matter, right? Uh, I think that, I think
3: I think Jonathan's comments are all correct, but they were to the Wellen case. They were to the Wellen case. Oh, you're and, you're right, Marty. But, but the, the, the take-home message of what Jonathan's saying is is critical. Small really stands for you got to do it right. You got to document it. No shortcuts. No backdating. The Welland case that Jonathan's speaking about goes back to the comments I made about getting forecasts and projections, make sure that they can really, uh, uh, you know, financially handle the plan they're doing. What Welland says is you got to make sure that the clients understand what the plan is. And in other words, you know, it's hard for me to believe that that practitioners in so many of these malpractice cases, no one ever told these very wealthy clients about anything in their accountants or wealth advisors, no one ever told them. But what it comes down to is clients may remember what they wanna remember, especially if they're upset. So you really kinda have to document it. I think one sort of broad take home message of all these discussions that we're having on this whole presentation, Mary, is practitioners can do wonderful work trying to help clients. There's risk in every transaction. We have to protect ourselves and document in writing, or we should, I don't want to set it as a standard of practice, some of these issues and some of these risks and some of these consequences. If clients want to proceed because they want planning done, document it. Let them know. Protect yourself.
1: Explain them. And actually, I think it's a communication. It's actually an ethical obligation, right? So two of the big complaints you see in cases are about that grantors one don't really understand when you do a grantor trust that they're actually still paying the taxes on it and we of course love it cuz it's a great burn right so that's it's a fabulous estate tax strategy but one of the things they end up not having access to the income and complaining and we won't go into the ways to address that there's a lot of solutions and i think the other one that i've read there's just a huge issues about it, is people don't always understand that they're really making an irrevocable gift and so there'll be complaints about that. So I like to put, this is irrevocable. When you give it to the stepchildren, it's theirs. So yeah, there's a. An- one, one,
3: let me just interject one quick thing. When people with this kind of wealth level are doing these kind of transfers, I think it's absolutely wrong that courts will apply the the uh, standard of an average consumer. When somebody has 10 million, 20 million, 100 million, hundreds of millions, billion dollars, they should be charged with having a little more sophistication and knowledge than the average bear because that's the responsibility that comes with this wealth. And one of the best ways to protect a practitioner and get a better plan done is really very simple. Have a team effort. If the accountant is there, the wealth advisor's there and the attorney's there, all three people are gonna be telling the client the same thing because they all understand it.
1: I think that's great advice is the collaborative plan, which they should have in the same room if they're doing that type of transaction. Well, there's another case out there, the Levine case. Does one of you want to speak to that case?
2: Well, Levine involved uh, split-dollar insurance. Um, Split-dollar insurance itself is kind of complicated, but the bottom line is that the lawyers did everything right. They documented it. They didn't go for crazy values, and at the end of the day, the taxpayer had the transaction respected and only the uh, dollar amount to which the uh, matriarch was entitled to at the time she died was includable in her estate so if you're going to do a split dollar plan please read that levine case and you know follow it carefully on doing you know dotting the i's and crossing the t's to make sure that it's done Uh, There were other cases before that where the taxpayers did not fare very well. So, again, you watch it. But the broader lesson of the Levine case is that they did go ahead and have a good record of why they did things. So it wasn't just, gee, we did this to save estate taxes. There were family and business reasons for doing the split dollar arrangement. And at the end, the court said, I know the IRS is upset with this. But it's its own regulations which have caused this problem. So the court said if you're unhappy
3: with the result, go ahead and change your regulations. Uh, Let me make a broader comment about Levine. Everybody listening to this, if you haven't read the Levine case, go read it. Forget the split dollar stuff. Just read what the court said about why it respected the planning. The court went on and on about how it liked what the practitioner did, how they demonstrated that they were only using what the court called excess capital to make gifts, not money that Mrs. Levi needed to pay her, her, her core living expenses. Excess capital, really important concepts. They had uh, a PowerPoint to explain the planning to the client. Court loved it. There's a lot of really good lessons of how to do any kind of planning in Levine.
1: I think it's great to actually read a case that has that type of result that gives you a good guide rather than, hey, here's the really bad facts case. Or there were some actual some facts in there that could have worried you, but because the planner did such a great job, it was a great that, result.
3: That, that, that'll take another chunk of time to get into. But there were issues in Levine with the fiduciaries and how things were handled Um, But I I think that's a much broader discussion than we have time for. But there's some wonderful take home lessons for every practitioner, regardless of whether or not you do split dollar. And I think with Levine, a lot of people, if they don't ever want to touch split dollar and a lot lot of practitioners, you know, they just don't feel comfortable with split dollar. I'm not quite sure why. It's just like any other area. You got to learn it to do it. But there are great lessons in Levine for everybody. And it's not that hard of a read.
1: And so the last topic I wanted to cover today is the lovely corporate transparency act. Which one of you wants to take that one on first?
2: Well, let me begin by saying it's not just corporate. These rules apply to any entity and the burden is on the entity to do the reporting now. And this is being used to try to stop basically, you know, improper transfer of funds, you know, hiding it whether it's for drug reasons or uh, slave labor or whatever it is. They just don't want people being able to avoid reporting to the government what's happening with money, whether it's gambling again, whether it's drugs, no matter what it is that it applies to the entity and the people who control the entity. And in some cases, people who have been involved with the entity have to be reported to the uh, to, to the, the federal government here. It's a federal government rule. Uh, but, but keep in mind that it only applies basically to small companies. If you're a publicly traded company, it doesn't apply to you. The only way you're really out of it is either not have an entity which is formed by the state. In other words, you just have a general partnership in your practice. You don't have any reporting. However, if you become an LLC or an LLP, you're going to have a reporting requirement unless you fall under an exception. The one exception they have are for very large entities. If you have at least 20 full-time employees. And of course, you can argue about who is a full-time employee as opposed to being an independent contractor or part-time. But if you have 20 full-time employees, and if you have at least $5 million of sale or gross receipts for the prior year, you do not have to make the report. But there are severe penalties if you don't do it. And everybody needs to be aware of it because most businesses, I think there are well over 30,000 businesses, are going to have to report. So, you know, the farmer, for example, and he's put his farm in an LLC to protect him or herself from lawsuits that might happen by somebody coming on the land and being injured or something, that kind of entity is going to have to report. And the farmer or the grocer or whoever it is, or even, you know, a lawyer is not going to take the time and effort. So those of us who do represent small businesses really have to be aware of this. Again, it's strange that it's not big companies that are caught by this, but it's the small ones that are caught by this. Trusts per se are not under this because you form a trust without going to the state and saying... I want to form this entity, which you have to do even for a single member LLC. So it's something that all of us need to be aware of. The first reporting is due in January of next year, 2000, I'm sorry, 2024. Uh, With certain exceptions. So you've got to be aware of it. You need to advise your small clients about this because they probably are completely unaware. And they're going to say, well, why didn't you tell me about this? You knew I had a farm. You knew I had an orchard. You knew i had a grocery business you know i had a truck you know i had a small business truck and so on and so forth and almost always you have advised the client to put it in some you know asset protection entity such as an llc and they're gonna say well why don't you come back and tell me i had this reporting requirement so you really have to know something about the corporate transparency act and again i emphasize it just ain't for corporations it's any entity which is formed under the auspices of the
3: state. Mary, are you familiar with the Star uh, Trek episode on Tribbles, Trouble with Tribbles?
1: That I'm not. Oh, my gosh.
3: I'm going to talk, talk directly okay. to the audience because I, just, I don't know how to address that situation. <laughs> trouble with Tribbles, right? They just multiply. Well, we as estate planners, when we set up trusts, the LLCs underneath them, the entities underneath them often just multiply like triples. And Mary's going to watch that episode in a rerun somewhere and, and call me and tell me how wonderful it is. But the, the the issue for a lot of our clients where we have, let's say we have non-reciprocal slats, you may have some of the investment assets in an LLC that's owned disproportionately by the different trusts. Clients that have um, a, a vacation home that's owned by various DAPs and slats and SPATs and other irrevocable trusts is typically owned by an llc so you don't have an alaska slat or dapt owning an interest in real property in new york or in california we all have clients that have a multitude of llcs i haven't studied all the, the, the 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 details of it yet but jonathan it sounds to me like those entities may well have to report
2: not May. They do have to report. Money. So
3: that's going to be something clients are not expecting, because gee, you know, if it's a farm, it's a business, it's an orchard, but that was just owning my vacation home. Why am I reporting that? And they're not going to be happy, not just about the cost and the compliance, but about this information being out there in the ether about their private situation.
2: Right. This was this is basically legislation to stop money laundering, where, you know, people would come in and form an entity in a certain jurisdiction like the United States. And you go ahead and you funnel the money through there and you change the ownership of it to someone else. And they suck out the assets that are there and they're trying to stop this. This is a very big deal. Um, The legislation has been around now for a couple of years. They've just gotten the regulations out. There are a lot of questions about it, but it is worth your while to be aware of it. And even more important to advise your clients, especially and, and just a general, you know, a flyer. I don't think will do it. You have a client that you're almost positive it's going to be covered by the Corporate Transparency Act, write that client a separate letter saying, you know, you can do it yourself, you can hire an accountant, there will be others who will do it, or you can come to us. But I promise you, if you get in this early, your practice is going to burgeon on account of this.
3: Yeah, I, I'm going to just say I, I don't know that you have to write an individual letter to every client you've ever set up an LLC for. I think general communications will make it clear. But for a lot of uh, trust and states attorneys, for example, you have like triples. There's just tons of them out there, tons of them. You got to let clients know be well well in advance of the end of 2023, because like Jonathan said, 2024 you got to have a filing done.
2: Like a family limited partnership, not a general partnership, but a family limited partnership. Presumably you formed under the auspices of the state under the Limited Partnership Act or as an LLC. Guess what? There has to be a report unless it has more than 20 employees and has more than $5 million of sales or gross receipts. And most of the ones you've set up, let's say, for asset protection or for discounting purposes, legitimate estate planning reasons, uh, I think you should write every circumstance that you're aware of, I think you should write to, of course, I'm not practicing anymore, so there's no burden on me. But Mary, I'll bet you probably have, what, 500, maybe a 1,000 of those that you've been involved with?
1: probably more than that Probably <laughs> <Dribbles>. more. <laughs> yeah get the,
2: get the word processor yeah. going mary
1: so yeah and what i think we ought to do is as we get closer to this deadline we should follow up just on the rules on this because i think that's when you talk about that i have to say i'm just picturing a flow chart i created for a client last week with a number of locs just for that client and yep. so can you that's imagine a, the reporting That's a really big area. And the fact of the reporting, you have to consider how that impacts, especially if we're planning for privacy or asset protection planning purposes in that. So we'll follow up on that. Do either of you have any last thoughts
3: today? I think the quote from Hill Street Blues, I won't get it quite right, be careful out there.
2: Jonathan? Jonathan. Marty said it all, as he usually does, Mary.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Marty and Jonathan. I really appreciate it. That's all for today's episode. I want to thank again our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Stay tuned for our weekly episodes.
0: About any legal needs or questions you may have. Ahura Media Production.